Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. Welcome to episode eight of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today we're joined by Angela Pfeiffer, who is a SIBO guru and has a thriving clinical practice um, for the past 11 years working clinically as a licensed certified nutritionist. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in nutrition science from Bastia University. And she was also trained in functional medicine, even before the term functional medicine became a buzz word. So she specializes in functional gut disorders. And for the past four years, her practice has solely focused on SIBO. As the SIBO guru, instead of chasing symptoms, she helps her patients get to the root of their illness. And this is something that Angela and I talk a lot about, how to play your own private investigator to get to the underlying cause of your SIBO. Because let's remember, SIBO is a secondary condition. Something has to have gone wrong for it to have developed in the first place. We talk about why diet alone won't cure SIBO and how she uses various diet types to help her patients manage their symptoms with SIBO. And also we talk around uh, some case studies from her practice and just the emotional toil that eating for a condition like SIBO can have on an individual. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Angela Pfeiffer and it's episode eight of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Welcome to the show, Angela. Thank you, Rebecca. So well, Angela and I met actually at the SIBO Symposium in Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon this year. We sat next to each other on the first day of the symposium and we hit it off pretty much as soon as we sat down and started ta- talking to each other. I think we're very much, uh, we've got kindred spirits and we both share very similar visions around uh, just helping people to get well again. So I'm so excited that you could come onto the podcast today. Oh, me too. Uh, me too. And absolutely, it was it was so interesting sitting down and uh, we just uh, sat next to each other. We felt how in tuned we were. <laughs> yeah. By the end of the first day, we're like, we're meant to do something together. I don't know what it'll be yet, but it's something. And exactly. Yes, it's, yeah. It's it's been it's been great knowing you and seeing where you've gone to. It's what it's wonderful. Yeah, and the same goes for you. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to for the for my listeners that. Um, haven't heard of you, or those that have and would like to know a little bit more about you, I'd love for you to tell us how you came to be, you know, the SIBO SIBO guru. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, initially, I was going to get my PhD in psychology. 
and I really wanted to focus more on emotional eating in my practice. And I took one nutrition class called Nutrition and Nursing at the University of Washington. And I realized very quickly that this is the only undergrad nutrition class that's offered. It's not required by nursing students, let alone doctors. And it was just a moment of clarity. I changed paths right then and there and completed my master's in nutrition science at Bastyr. Uh, From the start, I have, I focused on IBS and functional gut disorders um, and also emotional eating from the start. So I still had that spark in me, you know, as I was, as I initially did when I was thinking about the PhD track for psychology. Um, You know, initially it was really, really successful at helping my patients overcome IBS. And even if they'd been dealing with IBS for 30 years and knew where every bathroom was in Seattle, I could get their symptoms under control within a week. And about four or five years ago, I started to get very resistant cases. These were what we now know as SIBO. And what we were doing for very successfully, wildly successfully with IBS patients wasn't, uh, it wasn't working, no longer working. So we, were, uh, we weren't seeing that immediate recovery with the symptoms. Um, in fact, the fiber probiotics, eating more soluble fiber foods, eating more consistently, all of that was bringing on more symptoms with these people and they were feeling worse. So as a functionally trained practitioner, you know, we are investigators. We want to know why things are happening. Let's really get at the root of why things are happening. And so I had to dig in. I had to research more. I had to pull together a close team of colleagues to share clinical wisdom. Um, Worked for a lot of hours on end every single week to really help patients who were dealing with this. Um, And so that's just how um, my practice was shaped. And um, I've, I've been focusing almost solely on SIBO about the last four years because of it. And I think that SIBO people out there are so grateful for you for focusing on SIBO because it um, is quite, it can be quite a complex condition. And for those of us like myself who suffered it for years without any understanding as to what was causing all of these IBS type symptoms, it's, it's great to have someone out there who takes that investigative approach and really looks for the root cause of what's mm-hmm. going wrong. And yes. I think when we think about numbers of people who have IBS, in Australia, they predict, and I think this is very conservative, that one in five Australians have irritable bowel syndrome, which is about mm-hmm. five million Australians. But talk mm-hmm. to me about how many it's predicted have IBS in America. Yeah, it's actually 25 to 45 million <clears throat> that they predict have IBS in America. Uh, and, and it's interesting when you look at, and it, it, to me, if I could back up, I IBS symptoms to me, or IBS, the diagnosis, is really a catch-all for symptoms that they can't label as anything else. Um, and there's, there's some people that, are, that definitely do have IBS, um, that there's, there's, there's reasons why they have it. Um, it could be lactose intolerance. It could be um, high stress. It could be that they're not digesting well, um, not sleeping well. And there's a lot of things that can contribute to IBS and IBS symptoms. When we look at studies that are trying to differentiate how many of those, you know, of that population has SIBO, um, depending on the study that you look up, look at, it's anywhere from twenty to fifty percent. And I think I think fifty percent is actually going a little bit too far, um, but it's still, in terms of millions, it's still a lot of people. Um, so I'd say um, the vast majority of people that have IBS do not have SIBO. You know, IBS is not SIBO, and SIBO is not IBS. Um, there's there's other there's other factors that set SIBO up that are quite distinct. Um, and again, being very complex in nature, there's a lot of factors that contribute to it. 
There are definitely. So I'd, I'd love to, to know your thoughts on what causes SIBO, what you see in your clinical practices and what's being presented to you in, in, with your mm-hmm. patients. Yeah. Uh, well, SIBO, I think, you know, just one thing I think we all need to, to look at when we think about SIBO is that SIBO is a secondary condition. It's not that everything is going really well and SIBO just started. Um, SIBO is present usually because of multiple factors that have led up to it. And then there's usually an event that kicks it over. Um, More times than not, intestinal dismotility is a factor. I say more times because sometimes if somebody has had um, some sort of intestinal resectioning, um, there's, you know, that that doesn't necessarily involve intestinal uh, intestinal dysmotility. So it's, um, there's, there's other things that can set this up, but we usually have a dysmotility piece. Um, sometimes that's from taking pain meds and having slowed motility, but that same population might have had low stomach acid and had long use of NSAIDs, um, you know, like Tylenol, um, non-inflammatory, um, um, steroidal, or non-steroidal, pardon me, inflammatory um, drugs. Um, maybe they use proton pump inhibitors long-term. Maybe they were under a lot of stress and then something happens and they have to take pain meds that further slows the motility and that can set SIBO up. So it's kind of like a, you know, a cascade of events that kind of trickle down to set this up usually for people. Um, I think the most common uh, reason that people can get SIBO is a post-infectious IBS where they get a food poisoning event. They're exposed to a toxin during that event. That's the reason our body tries to flush it out <laughs> in, in, in both ways sometimes. Uh, and their body produces antibodies against that toxin to combat it. And in doing so, some people, small percentage of those people, might also have those antibodies cross over and start to attack uh, vinculin, which is an end communication um, uh, protein within the gut lining. And if that gets attacked, then we have slowed motility. Um, and this interrupts the work of the migrating motor complex. So it comes back to um, that food poisoning event kicking off the dysmotility that then sets SIBO up. Um, adhesions can be a risk factor. Um, I see, you know, I, I think um, I'd love to work with the with a, with a broad range of people who have SIBO, but I think a lot of times when people seek me out, they're very complex cases um, and they've been through a series of <clears throat> other practitioners or doctors who are trying the best they can, but they're just not having a meeting of the minds. They're not getting better. And so sometimes I'm sought out and, you know, we, we identify that they have an adhesion, and this is the reason, no matter what they're doing in, in trying to treat this, SIBO keeps coming back because there's adhesions within the abdominal um, area that are pulling on the intestines and allowing a little pocket to occur behind it, which allows organisms to overgrow. Um, you know, I, I always ask about adhesions, if they've had any abdominal surgery, C-sections, appendectomy, uh, which is right next to the... Um, the IC valve, which can be really concerning. That's what's going to close off the small intestine to the large intestine and, and um, your appendix bur- uh, bursting or uh, rupturing or an appendectomy can definitely contribute to this. Um, and if they've had a cyst rupture, so those can be issues. Um, sometimes if we're not seeing um, something more acute, you know, we'll kind of go back and look to see if there's been a concussion. If um, they've had a tonsillectomy where they might have a uh, vagal nerve interruption, so their digestive tract isn't getting good innervation and helping support digestion from the top down, and then maybe they're under a bunch of stress, and that's adding to the top of it. So there's there's a lot, you know, um, and I think that's where 
you know, I think everyone always uses the word complex when we talk about SIBO, and I don't think we can use another word. That's such a perfect word to describe SIBO. But that's why when you, when you, you know, respectfully line up 10 people who have SIBO, it's all presenting in a different way. There's different factors that led up to this. There's different, you know, as much as we need to look at SIBO and treat it in um, most cases, we have to look at what's underlying it. If it's a secondary condition, what set it up and has that been addressed fully? Otherwise, you're going to feel like you're stuck in the cycle of treating it, symptoms get a little bit better, now it came back. Treating it, symptoms got a little bit better, and now it came back. And with each round, you know, you might lose a little bit of endurance, you know, as you, as you move along. So we really have to look at, take a step back and really look at the whole picture when we're treating SIBO. And I think that's such, uh, such a great approach. And it's uh, what, what, um, often makes me feel sad is that uh, there are some folk out there that believe they can just take a pill and then it will be gone. But that, but I think you've explained very eloquently that SIBO had to have ha- SIBO has happened because something went wrong first. It didn't right. just we didn't just wake up one day with too much bacteria in our gut and then right. and we'll take a few pills and then that will be gone and we'll be forever fixed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and think of it too, if I may really quick, that digestion is supposed to be moving forward. I mean, this, this is not how the body wants to do things. It's like whenever we swallow something, the esophagus pushes it back up. That just doesn't even compute, right? Everything should be forward moving and move through. Nothing should be stagnant. Um, So it's, it's really does take a lot to get SIBO to set up. There's, there's, Many checks and balances that we have from, again, that forward-moving motility, the migrating motor complex, clearing things out, um, you know, different ways that we can flush and clean out our small intestine where, where this shouldn't even be an issue. So it's, 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 it's a lot to unwind once people get SIBO. It can be done. It absolutely can be done, but it's a lot to unwind and to come in and think we can take, to me, take an antibiotic and walk away and say this is fixed. I don't see it. Um, that might be 5% of, of patient groups, but you know, they're, they, you know, they, they keep saying how much this is a reoccurring condition, but that's how they're treating it. And that doesn't make sense to me because we're not looking at why this got set up and we don't think about the other ramifications um, and balances that we have to do and healing and immune modulation that we have to do with the gut to get everything and, and, and always motility support, you know, to get the gut back to moving in the right direction. And I, I think what you called yourself right at the start, which is that you're an investigator. And I think mm-hmm. that we, sh- we all, as people that have experienced or are experiencing SIBO, or we know someone that has it, that we need to be our own PIs, our own private investigators in our own health. I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. And get second opinions. Get second opinions. You know, uh, I, I was, uh, this is my clinic day. I'm at the end of my clinic day today. And I was, I was off the phone today with a new patient. And uh, Zyfaxim, she, you know, had met with her doctor. This, this was last year. I'd met with her doctor. And Zyfaxim wasn't approved by her insurance. And so she asked her doctor what her doctor wanted to do. And the doctor said, we'll do Cipro. And Cipro is a very, very heavy hitting antibiotic. It's like going into your doctor with a, with a headache and they give you really heavy migraine medication. It, it, it's, it's way stronger than we need to, to do, first of all, for the small intestine. And I always think about how much endurance that person's going to 
lose when they use something that strong, let alone just dumping antibiotics into the system that's going to have a wide-reaching effect on the whole system. So, so I think, you know, if I, 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 I work with a ton of doctors, I have great respect for all modalities. I think we need a team approach with this. And, you know, I know sometimes people seek out these podcasts and, and read articles after they've met with their doctor, gone through treatment, it didn't work. So I know sometimes, you know, a lot of people are on the other side of this trying to find something that's worked when they've tried other things already. Um, but really, you know, look at this a little bit more holistically, get another opinion. You know, antibiotics aren't, aren't usually going to fix this out of the gate, let alone fix it long term. And how do you um, advise your patients how to build a team for themselves, a healthcare team for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say you've got to find a practitioner that can do a little bit more handholding um, with this. Um, I, my, my favorite doctors are um, integrative GI doctors, which are really hard to come by. <laughs> Jerry Mullen come to mind, comes to mind at John Hopkins. He's awesome. Um, but finding it more of an integrative GI doc, um, finding um, an integrative medical doctor, um, or a, um, a good naturopath to work with that does a lot of work around the gut um, because they're going to look at things. They have more time for you, and they're going to look at things a little bit more holistically. Um, and then it might make sense to um, you know, try to find another practitioner, maybe more on the nutrition side, maybe somebody that works a little bit more on the concierge side in, in um, medicine so they have more time for you because there's a lot that comes up with SIBO. Um, and... Uh, I think a lot of what I do is help keep people stable on the treatment plan. And when symptoms come up, as we talk through those, okay, where are those coming from? What happened? How do we overcome it? And how do we stay the course versus feeling like every single symptom is making SIBO worse? Mm. Because the person has SIBO. They're going to react to things. We're doing everything we can to keep things stable. But oftentimes I find that people really chase treatment plans um, from all the chat rooms to the blog articles. Um, you know, every, everybody that I work with has at least 50 supplements at home that I have them take a picture of what they have and send them over. Like, let's shop your, shop your closet first. Let's see what you have there and what we can use. But I'll ask, when did you take that? How much did you take? What did it do? And they're, you know, kind of starting and stopping without really getting a plan in place and realizing, okay, if I, if I take these four things, this is what it's going to do for me. Now let's monitor symptoms and see how I do and see what comes up along the way versus trying something for a couple of weeks and stepping into the next thing. Um, well, if somebody has SIBO, they're going to react to things. Um, you know, I, sometimes I find that when we're on a protocol and we're addressing SIBO with herbal antibiotics, and we have a patient very stable, it might be a couple of months in where they had really high SIBO levels, um, high parts per million on their, on their lab. And a couple months in, they'll eat off plan and say, oh my gosh, I reacted. Why, that, why is that happening? Like you still have SIBO. You just, you, instead of having 120 parts per million, now you're at 60. We're making huge headway in knocking these organisms down, but you still have SIBO. You still are likely going to react and I think when people are trying to self-treat, which I get why they're trying to do that, because um, they might be not be getting the support that they need with their team, um, I find that people kind of chase their symptoms a little bit too much. Angela, I'd love to know how you work with your patients to uncover what occurred in their personal health journey for SIBO to um, develop in their bodies. 
How do you do that investigation with them? Yeah, we start with a health history timeline and really start to look at you know milestones that happened over their lifetime. Um, I have a SIBO questionnaire that I have everyone fill out, um, and it's you know going to ask some very classic questions uh, like: Do probiotics make you worse? Do five does fiber make things worse? Um, have you had a food poisoning event? You know, have you had a tonsillectomy? Have you had um, any kind of uh, stomach surgeries of any kind. So there's a very long list of questions that, not too long, <laughs> well, comprehensive, shall we say, comprehensive list of uh, questions that people go through. And from there, we do further investigating. So again, um, with the call that I, ha- I just had today uh, with the new patient, you know, we, we, we kind of go back to say, uh, when did the symptoms kick in? Great, what happened that year? You know, that really gives us a focus on where we're going to be looking, what's different, what came up that year. Um, for this particular patient, uh, she had a hysterectomy. Um, everything kind of started three years ago for her. And so she had a hysterectomy. She had about a year of unrelenting stress that led up to it. Um, that year, she had a hysterectomy and she had a um, really bad food poisoning event. And so I asked, have you had the IBS check test done? Um, that's a test that is available in the United States by uh, Dr. Mark Pimitol and his group developed that. Um, I can't stand the title of it. I can't stand it because we're not looking to see if somebody has IBS. Um, I feel like um, that test gives a little bit too much leeway with the name of it and a positive that if you have, um, if, if it's a positive test, you would be a candidate for SIBO treatment. We look at SIBO testing. Um, So to explain that a little bit better, um, the IBS check test basically looks to see if somebody has a post-infectious IBS um, issue. Um, And basically it's looking for uh, uh, antibody production to the CDTB toxin. Um, So again, if I have, say I I got a food poisoning event, I'm going to be exposed to a toxin. It's called a CDTB toxin. And my body will produce antibodies to that in a small percent of people, those antibodies are going to cross over and attack vinculin. So the IBS check test, what that's going to look for is if you have antibody production to the CDTB toxin, it's also going to look to see if you have antibody production to vinculin. So it's such a cool test because if you have antibodies to vinculin, we know there's a motility issue and we know that that is contributing, if not the cause for SIBO. Like we've nailed it. There it is. So it's a really great test. What I take a little bit of issue with is that it should be called the SIBO check test, (laughs) not the IBS check test, because I don't want all IBS um, looped in to this test because just some people are going to have post-infectious IBS. Other people can have IBS and it's not post-infectious. And I don't want IBS in its entirety connected to um, antibiotic use. And that's what it's doing. In fact, Zyfaxim in the States, um, we have lovely drug commercials that play at all hours of the day on our TV. And there's a little gut running around saying if you have IBS symptoms, you should go to your doctor and get Zyfaxim. It doesn't mention SIBO, doesn't mention getting a SIBO test. And it, it's, we're, we're kind of back where we were 10 years ago when everybody that had indigestion should go and run and get a proton pump inhibitor. It just makes no sense to me. There's no, that's not a good connection. So um, for this particular patient, I recommended that she went and um, she goes and gets an IBS check test with her doctor so we can determine if her SIBO was indeed brought about 
by that post-infectious exposure to a uh, food poisoning event. Um, and then we can do something about the, uh, the vinculin issue um, and that nerve regeneration issue. We know there's things that we can do for that. Um, I also asked if she had had, had her adhesions assessed and she had not. So first we're going to do the IBS check test and then next we're going to have um, her screened for the adhesions. So we really use a you know, the, the, the timeline, we can hone in on when these symptoms got set off. We can really look at that year to say what set this up. It's usually an event. It's rare that there's not an event. Um, if there's not an event, what I've found is there's some people where it's been more stress that kicked us in, but it's been because there was a concussion early on. There might be something like a co-infection like Lyme that is affecting um, their gut motility that they didn't know about. And we just have to keep investigating until we find it. And going right back to that part that you said at the start, which is that you were just, you are an investigator, that you mm -hmm. keep going. And I think that what what sounds so um, interesting for me is that if someone comes and sees you, that it sounds like you're, you, you're one of those people that won't, uh, won't give up. You'll keep searching for a solution. Right. <laughs> right. And we have to. We have to. We have to figure out why. Um, you know, and, and just kind of go back to that. If, if somebody has antibodies to vinculin, they're going to have uh, inconsistent bowel um, motility. They're not going to have consistent um, use of their migrating motor complex to sweep that area clean. They're going to have an issue um, at the same time, um, the, the IC valve that, that closes off the small intestine to the large intestine. Um, the, uh, there's there's um, a high density of interstitial cells of Cajal that um, basically are the cells that set the, the pace for the gut. They're kind of the pacemaker of the gut. There's a high density of those at the IC valve and in that area. And so an issue with antibodies to vinculin is going to affect your IC valve. So we, we know that we'd have to do ongoing self-assessment with that. Um, they would probably do great with a visceral manipulation therapist who can work on um, uh, digestion and, and making sure that the IC valve is, is sitting down. Um, we would look at um, some nerve regeneration support, even, you know, almost like the um, uh, peripheral neuropathy issues that we see with diabetes. We can use some of that support with um, SIBO to help, um, you know, if a vinculin's been an issue to help um, reestablish those nerves. So there's definitely things that we can do about it, but we need to know about it to be able to step into that. Definitely. And just for those people that are listening that um, might be new to SIBO, um, just a clarity around IC valve. What what does mm -hmm. that actually stand for, and what what's its primary purpose? Sure, the ileocecal valve is the valve between the small intestine and the large intestine. The ileum is the last section of the small intestine, and the cecum is the first section of the colon. So it's the ileocecal valve. Um, it should open to allow forward moving matter from the small intestine to the large intestine, and then it should close back up to prevent things from moving from the large intestine back up into the small intestine. And is there a way that people can um, test themselves if their ileocecal valve isn't working? I would say that, I don't know if test is the right word, um, it, it can be assessed. Um, basically, the ileocecal valve, if you put your finger on your nose and kind of move it around a little bit, just a little pat of your finger, that's what the tip of that, or that's what the um, IC valve should feel like a little bit of, you know, cartilage, like the tip of your nose. Um, and where it's located is about in two finger distances in on your right hip, um, um, right inside, um, let's see, about two, 
probably three, four inches down from your belly button and then straight over and two inches in from your right hip. Um, and you, you, you can assess it by laying on your back and putting your feet flat on the floor and having your knees bent. And then just with your fingertip, fingertips, kind of manipulate around in there until you feel that little bump. Um, that area should feel like you're touching the tip of your nose. Zero pain. No, no, there's no pain. There's no tenderness. If it's tender at all, there's issues. Um, I think what all, what's also interesting, um, I, a, lot, a lot of wisdom out of this last patient, <laughs> but um, um, she uh, was telling me her story and had taken a round of antibiotics with her doctor and then was getting these symptoms that came back and she was sure it was SIBO. And the way she was describing them, I said, I really think that was your IC valve having issues, being stuck open. Um, so oftentimes um, there's a deferred pain when the IC valve is stuck open. It doesn't, it never hurts in that area until you put your fingers on it and feel it. Um, and where people feel that deferred pain is that they'll get a lot of pressure right up under the middle of their ribs, um, right underneath, like the, underneath their sternum. They'll get a lot of pressure. Um, they'll feel almost like sharp pains up under their sternum. Um, they'll radiate to the back, usually on the right-hand side. Um, their right shoulder in the divot of their right shoulder, if you, they press with their thumb, that will be really inflamed. Um, so we get these really deferred pains that happen when that is stuck open. And, um, it, you know, on one hand, we need to assess it in, 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 and address it because we need it to lay down and not allow organisms to move back up. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's a lot of pain that I mean, people, I, I want everyone to, if they feel like going to the hospital, go to the hospital. But a lot of times people with SIBO will end up in the hospital with these these symptoms and pain and they'll look at everything, gallbladder, liver, everything. And they look at them and they go, go home. We don't know what it is. And, um, you know, it, it can absolutely, if everything else has been looked at, um, you know, feel, feel down there and see if there's an issue. Um, the other thing that's in that area, of course, is your appendix. Uh, obviously people could have, um, I wouldn't say similar symptoms. Usually you, you really hurt in that lower area if you have appendicitis or if you're, you know, you're, you're, um, you've got something going on with your appendix, but know that that's down in that area too, but you're not going to feel a little like nose <laughs> cartilage protection from where your appendix is at. Um, but the, the ileocecal valve is right there. You know, it's so interesting with you talking about the symptoms of an ileocecal valve that's open. And I have just realized just listening to you that I, my symptoms that I've suffered in the past um, are so in line with what you say symptoms of an open ileocecal valve are. You know, that referred pain, the pain under my sternum, uh, referred pain into my back. It's just, you know, I've, had, I've actually had a bit of a light bulb moment talking to you just mm -hmm. now, Angela. <laughs> yeah, it's not talked about enough. It really isn't. Um, you know, I think, and in, in, in if, I, if I may say, I don't know what happened exactly in your case, but I think sometimes people start chasing food a lot more. They'll start whittling their food down or they're, they're looking in different directions. And it might, it might very well be that they ate something that caused a little bit of bloating and that to stick open that happens. Um, but if, you know, again, if there's some issues with, with vinculin and that post-infectious IBS, you're not going to have good integrity. 
with the IC valve. Or if somebody has been just chronically constipated, obviously that can affect that valve as well. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. leads us nicely on to my next question to you around diet. So I think diet oh, no. can be <laughs> one thing that people can get quite fixated on and it is something that we can control. And I'd love to know your yes. thoughts around the importance of our diet and nutrition when treating SIBO and if we can cure SIBO through diet alone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, I hope you have a minute. <laughs> this is my, obviously one of my favorite subjects to talk about. But And there's just so much, so much confusion around the diet. And, you know, from all the different blogs that are out there to which diet to follow to the chat rooms or even the advice of the doctors can be quite um, different from one doctor to the next. So, you know, no one seems to be in agreement here about what to do about the diet. So, you know, we've got the specialized diet. We have FODMAPs, we have SCD, we have GAPS, and those are the main ones in in America. And they each have very strict rules over which carbohydrates are in and out, and they don't agree with each other usually at all. Um, GAPS is really well known for helping the autistic community. SCD is well known for helping the IBD community. And FODMAPs is really well known for calming IBS symptoms, though none of these were really created to address SIBO. So a couple of years back, Dr. Seebecker combined the FODMAP and SCD, and she brought us um, what she calls the SIBO-specific diet. Um, and you know, really her thoughts when she created it were that there were polysaccharides and some carbohydrates that were continuing to come in in the diet and fuel these gut organisms and prevent SIBO from being cured. And this was why we saw so much reoccurrence. And so we needed to pull these to really starve out the gut bugs. Um, and I say this with the utmost respect, utmost respect, because Initially, when this diet is used, people get their symptoms calmed down, um, but I don't feel, and I don't think she feels at this point, that um, that really has played out clinically, you know, over the years. If you listen to her presentation at the last EVO Symposium and on her latest interviews, she shares more of an updated view on the diet, um, stating that, you know, it's, um, she only changes the diet if there's symptoms to address, otherwise she doesn't change it during the treatment. Um, so really... Um, For the diet piece, to answer this in a nutshell, we modify the diet to help reduce and manage symptoms while the patient's being treated for SIBO. And that's whether with antibiotics or as I prefer to do it with herbal antibiotics. Then we work on gut healing and immune modulation. And then we start to challenge um, some of these foods to see which we can bring back in. Um, Most people with SIBO can handle a half a cup of sweet potato at a sitting or a half a cup of jasmine rice at a sitting. If you're not getting symptoms from that, you can include it. It doesn't bring SIBO on. It doesn't make SIBO worse. It's going to keep a person nourished. It's going to keep them fed and healthy while they're trying to really evoke all this change within their, you know, their gut and their system. Um, if they eat a cup of rice and they get symptoms, you know, look at reducing the load. Try three-quarter cup. Try half a cup. You know, I'd say across the board with my patient load, um, half, half a cup of, of um, sweet potato or turnip or jasmine rice or, you know, some of those starches, even quinoa, 
I don't have any problem having people bringing that in. And I'll say conversely, I've had patients with SIBO who have had chronically water, watery stool, excuse me, chronic watery um, stool. And I've had them actually do congee, which is um, basically you take a cup of rice, you add about 10 cups of water to it, you cook it for about five, six hours, you cook it down until it's this really soupy, watery mix. I have them drink it and it stops their uh, watery loose stool and it doesn't trigger a SIBO reaction. So I think there's been so much fear um, set up over starches and grains that is really unfounded. Um, and we need some, we need some to come in. Um, we really have to look at this more in terms of getting people nourished, keeping their endurance up so they have the endurance to heal their gut. And we can't do this when somebody's malnourished or not sleeping or in adrenal fatigue or when anemic. You know, when, when we're trying to heal the gut, we're really running a marathon. We, we need a lot of um, um, energy from the system and nutrients from the system to help do this. And we need the immune system really calmed down and participating versus being hyper-responsive because the system is in such a, such a stress state. Um, we do need to manage symptoms, and this has to be on a case-by-case basis, um, you know, so that bloating, again, doesn't hold open the IC valve and allow the organisms to migrate up from the large intestine. Uh, but this means really adjusting portions more than pulling all grains and starches. Um, there might be someone that just does, cannot do uh, you know, maybe they can't do nightshades at all, but maybe they don't do well on potato. Totally fine, but they sh- they'll probably be fine on a little bit of rice or a little bit of quinoa. Um, and I'll say in a side note, if a patient is extremely sensitive to all starches, grains, or fructose, you know, like in fruit, and they're really quick to react to these, it might be that they have SIBO in the upper small intestine. And this does complicate the diet more, and this group would do very well as a regroup plan with the SIBO-specific diet, which is, you know, grain and starch-free. That would be a really um, good place for them to start. But for the maybe other 90-plus percent of people who have SIBO, they don't have to go that restrictive. Um, This is more about, you know, if if you've got to be on treatment for two, three months and rebuild your gut and, and your lifestyle and work on stress and all of that, we need to keep you fed and nourished um, and we need to keep you on as much variety as we can. Um, so the, the consensus really is, is if you're, if you're not uh, reacting to something, that food is in. Um, it doesn't fuel things more. And I'd look at, you know, even Dr. Pimental um, includes white bread and white rice with his plan. He's always, in, he's always used those. And I've always used starches and grains with my plan, and I have really good success with it. Um, you know, I, I think the main point, which I think is really important for people to understand, is they're... Um, looking at, they're not feeling well. And I totally get that. They're not feeling well and they'll go through some sort of treatment and it doesn't work. And it starts to feel like, just like you said, it's what they can control. It starts to feel like if I pull potato, it'll make it all better. Oh, I, I, I shouldn't have had that carb or that starch. That's why I didn't get better. I've got to pull those now and treat this again and then I'll get better. And that it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Um, so I feel really strongly that when people whittle themselves down to seven or eight foods and have that strong, strong fear of feeding SIBO, and if they get a bloat reaction, they feel like SIBO is growing and getting worse. This is adding to the stress on the system, and it's going to make things worse. You know, stress from emotional stress and, um, or from malnutrition or from the lack of fuel, 
for the healthy organisms in your gut, it's all going to add on an additional load on the system and make this all the more difficult to overcome. And I, I think um, the point you've raised around the emotional side of, of eating, I think that, uh, that that can actually become, it can be problematic. I know I suffered from an eating disorder when I was younger. And when I got into my SIBO treatment, I remember feeling concerned that it may trigger a disordered eating again in me because it was so kind of strict uh, mm-hmm. for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and with my treatment, we were, we were eliminating foods for a short period of time. And then the mm-hmm. whole plan was to reintroduce as, as much yep. and as quickly as possible. Exactly. But I found security and comfort in very restricted eating. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to talk to you about whether you see kind of emotional or disordered eating that has arisen as a result of SIBO treatment with your patients. Yeah, I find that for a lot of people, um, and, and it makes sense, it really, excuse me, it really makes sense when someone has a, a functional gut disorder, they're under chronic symptoms and dealing with chronic symptoms on a, on, often on a day-to-day basis. And there's this hyper-awareness that comes with that for every hiccup, breath that didn't feel right, symptom that pops up, if they have gas, which is completely normal, you know, uh, um, you know, I think people with very normal digestion may not have a good digestive day on occasion. Their stool might not be perfectly well formed every day. And I think when, when, um, this level of symptoms happens for someone, it, it, it really breeds this hyper awareness that people can get very anxious about, um, and I see this all the time, all the time. Um, you know, pay, instead of paying as much attention to their symptoms, I, you know, I, I would rather they go out for a walk, go, go try to do a yoga class, try to go hang out with their friends and try to pull themselves out of um, this very respectful, as I say this, and with great empathy, because I work with, um, you know, patients who, who are feeling this way all the time. It's kind of like feeling like they're in this rabbit hole and they can't get out. Um, and the, the symptoms are really overwhelming. And I think what we have to do is really try to find a, a foundation of support, get them 10% better and get them out of their own head for a little bit, you know, in the day so they can start to step away from that. I can't say that I've found that um, I've seen um, more of it on a disordered eating side come out of SIBO but I really see much more than anything really hypersensitive responses to anything digestive or body symptoms and that there must be something wrong. And the anxiety that that breeds and adds on that load to the system. What's your advice for someone that is currently in that state, that they're, they're hypersensitive, they feel that they've literally only got a handful of foods that they can eat, and everything they do causes a reaction. What would your advice be in terms of what can they do today to try and help calm their system down? Yeah, um, try to go out for a walk. Try to do something in more of a group hobby. And I, I, I'm not saying that in any condescending way whatsoever, I promise. And I know anyone saying, gosh, I don't, I don't feel well going out for a walk doesn't even sound good. But it's like trying to get them, trying to get themselves out of that environment for a little bit can be so, so helpful 
for calming things down. And I think all of us have done it. If we're really stressed out with work or something and we go do something like, you know, the veil is lifted. We have a moment where we're not thinking about things. And so I think that can be really helpful. Um, um, I would say it's, it's, it's difficult to give people, um, you know, I know, I know a lot of things to do to settle the gut down um, is, you know, um, you know, gentian is, is lovely. Enteric coated peppermint oil is lovely. Um, a soothing um, warm water bottle is awesome. Um, and taking a bath with Epsom salt and trying to relax. There's some different things I think that can help relax the system, but there's so many reasons why that gut might be a little bit set off. So it's hard, you know, to give. And I know 20 things that would help 20 different people in terms of calming that gut down just a little bit for them. Um, that I would try to, um, you know, to me, um, trying to schedule in time to research and not having that consume, I think is a really important one to, to bring up as well. Um, because if you have SIBO and you're hanging out in the chat rooms, which I know a lot of people in the chat rooms are going to listen to this. I am all for them. They are lovely. They're great to know that other people are out there dealing with this. They're great for that camaraderie. We've got to be careful there's a lot of information posted in there and it can cause a lot of anxiety for people as well. Cause there's, there's unfortunately some people that feel very caught in this cycle and they share a lot about that, which I, I so appreciate and respect that they are because they're looking for some, some help and some camaraderie with it. And I think sometimes when people are in that space and reading that it can cause a lot of anxiety because they feel like things aren't ever going to get better. So um, I'd say that, I love an educated patient. I love it. Absolutely. I'll give them things to go look up. We'll talk about it. I think it's wonderful. Um, but I can, I can tell sometimes uh, when patients are spending every single night for hours on end, because I'll get emails. What about this? What about that? What about this? I read about this. <laughs> and I, I go, did you cook for yourself? Did you go for a walk? Did you spend time with your friends? You know, where, where's all of that space, too? Because we, we have to reestablish that. We can't, we can't keep up with this pace. Um, and we really have to, um, you know, kind of get out of that world a little bit, a little more often. We can get so insular and, and so mm-hmm. inward looking when we're, mm-hmm. when we're not feeling well. And I know that I was guilty of that at times. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, now I really try and look outward rather than inward. Mm-hmm. Um, meal times. I'd love to know your thoughts around whether we should be, um, this, you know, this conversation around that we should have a 12-hour fast between dinner and breakfast, that we should mm-hmm. leave four to five hours between each meal. Do you, um, do you feel that we should be um, quite regular with our meal times, or do you feel that this is quite individual? Yeah, uh, my response is it depends. When we're looking at classic SIBO symptoms, we really want to have a little bit more space in between the meals. And this is especially true if there's a post-infectious IBS issue present where the motility is an issue. We want to try to reestablish that by giving people a little bit more space between their meals. I'd say that my, um, my steadfast rule with one little asterisk on it, which I'll share, my steadfast rule is that we, there's, you know, dinner's around 6, 6.30 and there's a 12-hour, you know, maybe 7, and there's 12 hours between that and breakfast I really like that break for people. The rest of it, we have to really take again on that case-by-case basis because SIBO is a secondary condition. There's almost always other things going on with the patient. And I see a ton of people with adrenal dysfunction, 
and dysregulation, with blood sugar dysregulation, with insomnia. And we have a hierarchy of needs with a system. If you're not sleeping, that comes first. If your blood sugar is not regulated, that comes first. SIBO's third. It's all in a close, tight little race to the end, but that is the hierarchy of needs. So I'm not going to look at that patient and say, okay, you're not sleeping. Your blood sugar is completely dysregulated. Um, You're going to eat three times a day, and we're going to treat SIBO head on and throw you into a detox spiral. Like, we we can't do that. We really have to look at each person. Um, You know, it's, it's a really important clinical note that I see all the time. When there's a functional gut disorder like SIBO, which is so taxing on the system, we have this added stress on the system. Um, And I think this goes back to me, you know, we were talking about grains and starches. If people are pulling grains and starches completely, um, worried about kind of fueling those gut bugs, and we have to get away from the idea we don't kill the gut bugs. Nobody's killing the gut bugs. We knock them down, we knock them down, and we rebalance the system. That's how we look at this. So if we're looking at this from that perspective, if somebody's pulled grain and starches, it can really amplify an adrenal issue and increase adrenal dysregulation and blood sugar dysregulation and sleep disturbances. And this is really a vicious cycle. So I frequently, frequently see, frequently see pardon me, um, on a health history timeline where someone went paleo, which I, I, I have no problem with that diet, but just, you know, for, for example, um, someone went paleo or they went grain-free on the timeline. And from that point on, I see adrenal fatigue diagnosis, sleep issues pop up or chronic fatigue symptoms. And all of that's happening... Um, um, you know, when all of those are happening together, they're going to be even more sensitive to the foods that they're eating. And then they're going to keep whittling down on their food choices. And if we look back, it's they've, they're basically in blood sugar dysregulation. They're not sleeping well, which means they're in fight or flight all the time. And they're not going to digest because they're in fight or flight all the time. So they're getting symptoms when their guts are already hypersensitive. They're even more symptomatic. And they're going to keep whittling down on foods, which drops their endurance and then anytime they try to add any food back in, they, it's an overwhelming sensitive reaction. And it's, it's such a, I've used the, the, you know, said rabbit hole, but it's really a rabbit hole that people go down. And I think it's so unfortunate. And this is why I'm, I'm so strongly against pulling grains and starches in the vast majority of SIBO cases because I see this all the time, all the time. So if you're waking up between midnight and 2.30 in the morning, you're having a blood sugar dysregulation issue where your body would naturally have a blood sugar dip at that time. You should, you should release a little cortisol, won't even know it. You're sleeping soundly, the most sound of all time <laughs> in the middle of the night. Your body releases a little cortisol, which, which signals your liver to release a little glucose store. If that doesn't happen because there's adrenal dysregulation and you don't have enough cortisol available, your body will release adrenaline. It will, when it does that, have a very quick release of glucose because that's the that's the um, way we quickly adapt to something stressful, and you'll have a surge of insulin, which is inflammatory, and you're going to wake up. So if you're waking up between that time, you've got adrenal dysfunction, you've got blood sugar dysfunction and dysregulation, and eating three times a day isn't going to work. We've got to look at meal, snack, meal, snack, meal, and regulating your blood sugars so you don't have too long without eating where your blood sugar dips. Your body, again, can't regulate that, and you're going to release adrenaline. So we've got to take this, again, on a case-by-case basis. Um, I I always ask, how frequently do you wake up? What time do you wake up? Um, And if it's anywhere in there, you know, and they'll say, I come wide awake. 
and then I, you know, they think they have to urinate. And it's not, it's, that's not what woke them up because that is the most dead asleep time that we should have. It's because they had an adrenaline reaction that really woke them up. So I think ideally with SIBO, we want, you know, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with really that 12-hour fast between those. Some people can handle fasting. Other, other people, I think it's, I've never found anyone that can handle fasting. Let me say that. When, when, when somebody has SIBO as a secondary condition, there's so much more that goes with it. And their system's already taxed, so I don't uh, taxed. So I don't know why fasting would help. You know, I want to keep them more stable, better sh- blood sugar balancing, get them sleeping better, um, and from there they have better endurance to start tackling the SIBO piece. Well, it's interesting you say that, and, and I don't know whether I would have felt so good at doing intermittent <laughs> fasting when I still had an active case of SIBO. But since coming through my SIBO journey, I now fast. Uh, two mm-hmm. days a week. So I only eat one meal of 500 calories, which I have as my dinner, and I feel amazing for it. Yes. And, um, yes. and you know, it works really well for me, but I know that there's other people that just can't do it. It just doesn't work for them. Yes. I also know that my system is really hypersensitive to the blood glucose that arises from eating grains and, and sort mm-hmm. of starchy carbohydrate foods. So I feel a lot better when I, when I have a much more reduced load of them in my diet. So again, it's just so individual on it you know, an individual person's makeup. And whilst it's great that we have these dietary guidelines out there that can help mm-hmm. people, we have to be our own investigator to find what works for us and, yes. um, and stick with that. I agree. I agree. I think if we can pull off the table that grains and starches at at a low level feed SIBO, if we can set that aside, then at least there's kind of an even playing field for figuring out what's the best diet that I'm, that's going to support my needs, you know? Um, So I I agree with you. So if we can, if we can look at it from that perspective, I think it's helpful. Um, Again, I see um, I, I love a paleo style diet for some people. Um, if, if someone is um, insulin resistant and overweight, I think um, fasting is fantastic, not right out of the gate, but something that we might use later on. Um, and um, definitely more space between meals. Um, if somebody has, um, you know, they get a little bit tired after they eat grains or starches, um, if it's not an immune response, um, you know, if it's more of a blood sugar response, um, then they're not regulating their blood sugars that well. And more frequent eating is really the best approach to that. Um, so it is, it's very individual. Yeah. And so that's why I think, you know, working with someone that can do a little bit more handholding along the way to kind of look at patterns across a couple of weeks to say, aha, this is what's happening. You are reacting every time you eat this one food. Or you're not eating enough breakfast, so you're overeating at dinner, and you're having too large of a meal, then your gut can really handle, so it's kind of setting things off. You know, so we, we, we look at the patterns over time to really help adjust things. Wonderful. Angela, when would you use the elemental diet with your patients? Elemental diet. Um, to me, I find that the elemental diet is best placed when someone uh, maybe has Crohn's and is in a flare. And it really helps to give their gut a rest and help them go into remission. That's where I found it works best. I personally, uh, professionally, have not found that the elemental diet works for SIBO that well. Um, Again, I kind of go back to having an issue with the concept of starving out the gut bugs because that's really not what we're trying to do. Um, 
you know, it's interesting at the SIBO symposium, uh, not this year, but the previous year, there were three case studies presented on the elemental diet and two of the three um, had a SIBO reoccurrence um, easily within a month of coming off of it. And so my thought is it is a lot to put a person through. Um, someone has to be really, really stable to step into that. And I think it's people that are not very stable that want to do it. Um, and I say that, again, with great respect, their symptoms are all over the place and they just want something so they can feel better for a few days. And I appreciate that very much. But I think in terms of a treatment, I don't see it clinically um, as much as um, it's presenting at the SIBO symposiums. Um, there's a new product out by Integrative Therapeutics, the Physician's Elemental Diet. It actually tastes fairly decent. Um, and I think there are some interesting um, um, suggestions being presented at the symposium. And I've used, um, I've used this with a couple of patients um, where we might just do a single meal replacement within a day to give them a bit of a longer rest in between breakfast and dinner. And I think this comes in handy, again, with my patients where we have to eat a little bit more consistently. So uh, what I'll have them do is do, um, you know, kind of a snack, a scoop for a snack in the afternoon and then do two to three scoops for dinner, depending on where their weight is at. So we get, you know, basically from lunch to the next day, a rest in terms of fermentable carbohydrates coming in, and yet we still get to keep their calories up and they aren't on a two-week kind of fast with an elemental diet. And with regards to weight, I think this is this is a, um, a concern for some people around keeping their weight up um, or losing too much weight when mm -hmm. they use the elemental diet. Do you see that that is an issue with, with patients? Yeah, it's. I think it's been an issue more so when people made the homemade diet or actually purchased the other ones that were on the market because they tasted so disgusting that we could not. And I, I don't use it. It's not. It's not what I've ever used because when I, um, you know, when I go out, I'm, I'm on a clinician's group of 400 doctors. I also lead a group here. When we talk about it, nobody that I can find uses this on a regular basis with with success. So you know, kind of take that, take that as you may, but the ones that, that were on the market prior to the integrative therapeutics tasted so horrific that you just could not get a patient to take in enough servings of it to get enough calories in to keep their weight stable. And so people often lost weight on it. Um, and I think, you know, SIBO in general, I see people that lose, you know, the symptoms come on, they eat food, they hurt, they don't eat food and they'll drop 20 pounds in a few months. Um, it's, you know, it's quite scary how quickly they can, they can lose weight. Um, you know, uh, trying to stay away from, from food. And how sad, it's so sad to me that, that food is being equated with pain because food is so nourishing and lovely and celebratory. And, you know, I, I, I take great pride in getting people back to that, um, you know, helping them reconnect with food again, um, which I think is so, so important. It is, and it's one of the reasons why I developed my cookbooks because food mm -hmm. is to be enjoyed. It's fantastic. Food. I love food, and I love yes. what it uh, what it's there to do, which is to nourish us. Yes, absolutely, and 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 it's it's health. I mean, it's 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 so much. It's our energy source, and um, you know, it's 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 very sad. I mean, emotionally, it's very wearing on people to all of a sudden lose that connection. It is. Angela, I've just thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today. So I'd love to know what's next. What's on the horizon for you? Yes, on the horizon for us, my dear. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. well, well, we knew when we met each other at the symposium, we were destined to do something together and we, we jumped at the chance. So um, we have created a, a, a recipe site for 
um, low fermentable eating, um, and it is doing wildly amazing. Um, and um, basically, it's it's myself, um, a, a colleague of mine who um, Selva, who is a dietitian, and. Um, uh, you, lovely Rebecca, um, and we came together to bring. Uh, there's like 400 plus recipes on the site at this point. Um, people are really enjoying them, and, and we're we're making low fermentable or you know kind of FODMAP eating enjoyable again and doable, so people can really um, enjoy eating again and know what to eat, and they can put a meal plan together and print a shopping list. And these are easy and doable. So it's um, it's called GoLoGurus.com. Um, I would definitely visit um, Rebecca's site um, for the link to um, to um, check out our site, and um, we'd love to have you join. We'd love it. Yeah, that's great, and and the link yeah. for that is in the notes in with the show notes. Angela, Perfect. I I'm I myself have learnt so much on our chat today, and I'm sure my listeners have have learnt a lot from you as well. You really are a brilliant investigator when it comes to supporting people with their journey of regaining their health. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the Healthy Gut Podcast with us today. Thank you for having me. I I very much enjoyed myself. Thanks, Rebecca. I hope you enjoyed episode eight of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Angela Pfeiffer. If you would like to access the show notes or get any of the links from today's episode, you can find them at thehealthygut.co forward slash Angela. Now, I do have something to tell you. Since we recorded this episode, we've actually had a slight change of the name. So it's no longer Golo Gurus. It is called Gut RX Gurus. So you can find that wonderful recipe resource at Gut RX Gurus, G U R U S dot com. And I've obviously got that link in the show notes. Now, I've also got something really exciting to tell you guys, and it's based on all the feedback I get from my wonderful listeners and people that contact me from all around the world. And I have developed a special SIBO Christmas e-cookbook just in time for this Christmas. And everyone that contacted me said that they really needed help with finding suitable desserts and sides and starters or entrees or appetizers, depending on what you call it, for Christmas. So the book is launching any day now. So if you'd like to know more about my brand new Christmas cookbook or any of my other SIBO cookbooks, simply head to SIBOcookbooks.com and there you will find information on all of my cookbooks. If you would like to connect with us outside of the show, simply head to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube or Google Plus and you can find us under The Healthy Gut. And I also absolutely love hearing your feedback and I'd like to thank all of the listeners who have so far written a review and given us a rating and shared your thoughts on what you're really enjoying about the podcast. Your feedback is invaluable to me and it means that I can help create more episodes that are what you want to hear. So simply head to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app and write a review and put a rating in for us and uh, so that we can continue to bring you wonderful podcasts that you enjoy. Coming up next week on the Healthy Gut Podcast for Episode 9, we're joined by the wonderful Dr. Megan Taylor. 
Now, Dr. Megan Taylor specialises in working with kids with SIBO. So this is a must-listen episode for anyone that is a parent that is currently helping work with their child who has SIBO or if you would like to learn more about how SIBO can develop in young people. I'm pretty convinced I had SIBO as a young person. So it was a fascinating interview uh, chatting to Dr. Taylor. And uh, she talks about how it occurs in kids, her treatment protocol, and why kids can often be really great at responding to treatment for this condition. So tune in next week, next Tuesday, for my interview on Episode 9 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Megan Taylor. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.